you're listening to Ghosts and Cornbread. So here we are. We're back again. I guess this is episode five now because we just did four. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the continuation of the Giggling Granny. Um, in our last episode, Granny had, <laughs> or Nanny, as we, we think she killed six people. She's she's killed um, her two children, her mother-in-law, her uh, two of her grandkids, and her husband Frank. Have we missed anyone? I think... That was the only husband she's killed so far? Because our first husband got away. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we're going to move on. Um, Frank was the one that lived in Jacksonville. um, Alabama. Yeah, and they had that house in Cedarville. Um, And as we said, after he died, she got a little bit of a windfall, which I don't think she was expecting. She got um, insurance money, and then she got the house, so she sold the house. So, after Frank's death, Nanny sold the house in Cedartown, and with the money, and the insurance money, she bought 10 acres in Jacksonville, Alabama. And she built herself a little cabin, and she made a library filled with romance novels, and she even rented out some of her land to sharecroppers. So, then she had the steady income coming in. And I, when I was reading this, I thought, if she had just stopped. Yeah. Right yeah. here. Just stopped. She's got her library with her novels. She didn't have to worry about anybody. She doesn't have a domineering husband. But she just couldn't. Is it because of the romance novels and that that true love? And I think, you know, because like we said in the last one, at Frank's funeral, that was the last time she saw her daughters. Like, they never spoke to her again. Because at that point, they were convinced that she killed all these people. So without her daughters... She's kind of completely alone now. And um, so she began to write to the Lonely Hearts ads again. She starts up <laughs> with her Lonely Hearts ads again because she's got nobody. She can't help herself. She can't help Poor herself. Thing. She still wants that perfect romantic story that she read about when she was a little girl. Um, so for the next two years, she would travel around the country meeting up with her romantic prospects. Um, and now, in this time period, these two years, it, her time is somewhat unaccounted for during this period. But she spent some time in New York, and I found some biographies that suggested that there was a man that she was engaged to, engaged to in New York City um, with the last name of Hendricks, and that he died under suspicious circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> but that's never been proven, um, so we don't know if she really had a New York victim. So... Okay, I'm back. I had to turn off my Christmas tree because it was <laughs> making a weird noise. It's very old. Uh, okay. So, one man she did correspond with was a man named Arlie Lanning. He was a resident of Lexington, North Carolina, and they exchanged romantic letters, the kind that she would read about in her romance magazines, you know? So, and she was always looking for that great romance. So, Arlie was said to be really good natured. So, she thought, hey, this could be the one. Arlie was born in Alabama, but he settled on the east coast of North Carolina after the war, where he served in the Navy. And he had a thriving business, and I couldn't find out what kind, just a laborer is what it said. Um, And he had never been married. Now, um, Nanny understood that him never being married probably meant he was a womanizer, but she set out to marry him anyway. Um, And so she would have been in her early 40s at this point and I think Arlie was about the same age okay um so she traveled to Lexington to meet him and they were smitten with each other he found Nanny to be like the most beautiful and charming so she really still was very attractive yeah. at this point she kept taking care of herself yeah apparently. I think she did and I think she liked nice things you know she had money at this point um and she, you know she's said to be charming and funny and 
you know, good natured. And so she made a good impression on his sister and his mother, too. And his mother didn't live with him. His mother still lived in Gadsden, Alabama. So that's a plus. That's a plus. There's no overbearing mother-in-law to worry about. <clears throat> so within a few days of meeting, they wed. They literally had only known each other a couple of days. And this is this was her downfall, I think. Did they not have red flags back then? I don't know. I don't maybe. Was this they a common, you know? I think people did marry more quickly. What, you gonna marry before you catch cholera and die? <laughs> maybe what? so. Maybe they didn't have you know, nowadays we have like all those stories of, you know, we do have like you said, red flags. Maybe people didn't think about stuff like that back then. I don't know. But anyway, Arlie wasn't abusive like Frank, but he too had a problem with alcohol. And as Nanny suspected, he had a problem with women. Lots of women. Um, he was considered a catch in Lexington, North Carolina, um, because, you know, he had that company that was right. really doing well. So in this marriage, though, it was Nanny who would take off for days or weeks at a time when she found him being unfaithful. And sometimes she would visit friends and family so that neighbors and friends would think, you know, these are legitimate trips that she's going on and they wouldn't become suspicious of her. But other times there were secret meetups with her romantic pen pals. You know, she kept... She was still in this lonely hearts club. She still, I think through all the rest of her marriages, she continued to write to, to her pen pals, you know, and I think she would pick some up, let some go, find new ones, because she always she always had them. She actually, besides the murdering of her own yeah. blood, she's kind of a modern woman. Yeah, she really. She's not Mary Tyler Moore before there was television station. Mary to work Tyler at. Moore, if it's, if she was killing people, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. Like I said, I do think she's an intelligent person, but it's the murdering that you can't get around. I think she's intelligent, but I think she's not too bright when it comes to the affairs of human emotions. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a good point, that she she fell in love quickly. And like you said earlier, she's probably in love with love. She's in love with those stories. She's in love with the concept of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, She'd be a Hallmark dedicated follower today if she was right. around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she would be watching Lifetime movies and Hallmark. Yeah. Um, but as she did with the other marriages, she gave the impression to the neighbors of being this good wife and a good cook and a good homemaker. Um, she would even visit Arlie's 84-year-old mother in Gadsden, Alabama from time to time. So people really thought she was this kind-hearted, sweet, motherly person. She attended a Methodist church and became friendly with the preacher and his family, and as well as the congregation. And occasionally, Arlie would attend church with her when he wasn't hungover, but his reputation as a womanizer preceded him. And so once again, Nanny was thrown into this sympathetic spotlight. Her spotlight. Yeah, by neighbors and friends. Like, poor Nanny having to put up with this philanderer. You know what I mean? She thrived on it. She thrived on that, of that impression. So, um... Their marriage lasted for five years, and it was marked by periods of Arlie promising to be a good husband and swearing off alcohol and other women, and it would be good for a little while, but then it wouldn't last, and then Nanny would leave, and then he'd beg her to come back, and he'd promise not to drink, and then, like, the whole process would start over and Mm -hmm. over, you know? Um, He did claim to love her, and I really think he did love her, but that wasn't enough. Well, you know, if he was the catcher around town and she called him, yeah. he had to have something in her because he could have had everybody else. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, and that's the thing with all of her husbands that she catches, she clearly is able to make a great impression that they yeah. really are, you know, enthralled with her. Um, but 
it just, you know, his love for her just wasn't enough to keep him sober or faithful. Um, and this was an interesting point. I just put in here. He wasn't a bully. Um, the book describes him as somebody that kind of, he just kind of sat back and let Nanny take the lead in the relationship, you know? So he wasn't a bully. So there's part of me that thinks... <laughs> Okay, Abigail. Um, there's part of me that thinks that if she could have just put up with it, you know, maybe this would have been a, you know, but she just couldn't. Abigail! Abby! Okay. But she just couldn't stomach him, you know, having other women, I guess. Too bad she couldn't. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe if she could have just looked the other way and then she was having something. I know. So I know. She was running. I think they, she. They could have had a very early marriage of convenience, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think she could have been happy with him. Hold on. Let me just get him back. Ranger! Anyway, eventually Nanny would have enough after all this, this cycle of cheating and. Ranger! Enough! Okay. So in the winter of 51 and into January of 52, there was a bad flu virus sweeping Lexington. And a lot of people had died. So Arlie was at home more because people weren't getting together as much. I guess there was social distancing back then. Nanny decided to make Arlie a pie using her special prune recipe (laughs) and her secret ingredient of rat poison. Um, Arlie declared the pie was really good, and he ate several pieces. And in the morning, Nanny called the doctor, but by the time the doctor was able to make it to the house, Arlie was already dead. Now, the doctor put down heart failure as the cause of death, even though he believed that Arlie had actually died of the flu. And the author says in the book that a lot of doctors did that back then because they didn't want to cause a panic. So they wouldn't put flu. They would put stuff like heart failure. Okay, because this is not long after the Spanish flu. World War One. Well, still I think that was... Mind. Yeah, I guess, because I was 1818. And this would have been like, when did I say 41? Oh, 51, And 52. the flu was still yeah. deadly. Yeah, it could be deadly. But um, any point, right, at this point, we're going to stop for a word from our totally real and not fake at all sponsor. Located in the Highway 67 flea market is Wilma's Wig World Emporium. She offers the best selection of wigs to be found in the Tri-Cities area. She offers only the latest and trendiest wigs along with hair accessories for any hair type. Only the most popular wig makers are offered at Wilma's Wig World Emporium. You'll find the Gabor wigs and the Raquel Welch line of wigs. (laughs) You'll find the most realistic synthetic hair available on the market at prices that you can't beat with a stick. (laughs) Human hair is also available, and here is probably the most important thing that sets Wilma's Wig World Emporium apart from the other wig retailers is her new surrogate hair donor program. It's the only program that offers such a personal and up-close connection to the person whose hair you will be wearing one day. You will select from our stable of hair donors the hair type that you desire for your wig. You will meet with a donor, select a shampoo and hair care for the donor, and then this is where Wilma's Wig World Emporium is different from our European competitors. Wilma will let you select the dye of the donor, ensuring that you receive a natural hair wig that has been grown with nutrient choices of your choice. You get to pick what goes in the hair donor's body. You get to pick what goes on the hair donor's hair. It's a win-win situation, ladies. (laughs) Or men. You never know. Or men. 
<laughs> Come seek Wilma and discover the way that allows you to live life with abandonment. Come see Wilma and discover the wig that allows you to live a less hectic hair care life. <laughs> so Thank please you. come on down and visit Wilma at Wilma's Wig World Emporium. <laughs> Thank you, Wilma. Okay. All right. So we're back. Please visit Wilma's, Wilma's Hair Emporium if you get the chance. Wig World. Wild Wig World Emporium. Wilma will not be happy. <laughs> no, she will not be happy. <laughs> Are you aware of her wig master status with the local community theaters? No, I wasn't. Oh, Does she well. work with the sock puppet community? She works with the sock puppet <laughs> community and the greater Harper Valley uh, community theater. <laughs> okay. She's got it going on. Okay, so back to Nanny Doss, <laughs> our murdering, giggling granny. So she's just killed her, this is her second husband. Well, it's actually her third husband, but her second husband to kill. Um, so Arlie has just died, and they thought it was the flu. So as usual, the town mourned Arlie's passing and banded together to support Nanny, the poor widow. And after the funeral, Arlie's mother invited Nanny to come stay with her, and Nanny agreed. And I'm not sure why she does this, because she was free. Um, and I talk about it a little bit later on, but the, the author thinks maybe she did it because she just couldn't say no, because it would look bad if she ran off, you know. So Nanny packed up her things, readying herself to move back to Alabama, because to Gadsden, where the mother lived, thinking she could sell the house in Lexington. But Nanny would soon discover that Arlie hadn't updated his will after marrying her, so his property and his wealth went to his sister. He hadn't even taken out a life insurance policy. All that time, because she stayed with him five years, and she was left with nothing. So Arlie's sister refused to give Nanny any of the inheritance from Arlie, despite people telling her that it was cruel. Like, church members, town folk, they thought it was cruel that this poor widow was going to be left with nothing. But Arlie's sister felt that Nanny had her cottage in Jacksonville and money from the, you know, she had the sharecroppers that were on Oh, her. yeah, yeah. So she's like, she's got a stream of income, so she doesn't need anything else. And I'm wondering, maybe the sister didn't really like her at this point. And maybe That's she what was, I was thinking, too. She yeah. Was, she could have been jealous. And yeah, maybe she thought, you're being greedy. I don't know. Or she was a gold digger or something. So, Nanny was trying, as Nanny was moving her stuff out of the house, Arlie's sister was moving in, and while boxing up her belongings, Nanny found the homeowner's insurance policy and discovered that if anything catastrophic, catastrophic happened to the house, that she would be the beneficiary. <laughs> so, I'm not sure why. I don't know if she took the policy out on her name or if Arlie renewed the policy and put her on it because she wasn't clearly on the deed of the house right. and she wasn't in the will, but she must've been on the homeowner's policy. So after Nanny moved all of her stuff out of the house, the house mysteriously caught fire and burned to the ground. <laughs> so those who were suspicious of the fire, um, I, there were those who were suspicious of the fire, especially Arlie's sister. But the fire inspector couldn't prove the fire was the result of arson, so Nanny was paid out for her loss. So she did, she did get paid out for the house after all. But she moved in with Arlie's mom, and again, I put here that I'm not really sure why she does this. The, the author kind of implies that she didn't know how to say no, and since she was a widow, maybe she thought it would look bad if she just ran off with the money, you know, after the fire. Well, where is Arlie's sister living? Um, I guess Arlie's sister was in Lexington, and she must have had her own residence. 
and was going to move in the oh, house. Well, it makes but, me wonder if Arlie's mother took the side of Nanny in the dispute over the house. She must have, because I'm sure Nanny looked like this poor widow who's not going to have a house now, you know, even though she had property. Um... But, you know, she was really concerned how people, how she looked to people. So I guess that's why she went to the, to her mother-in-law's. But the sister was suspicious of the fire, um, especially because Nanny had gotten all her stuff out first. Right. And then the fire happened. But anyway, not long after Nanny moved in with Arlie's mother, um, the old woman takes ill. <laughs> and Nanny nurses her, even making her some of her stewed prunes. Mm-hmm. But alas, the old woman doesn't last long. And the doctors declare her dead of the same flu that probably killed her son. And the sister didn't seem to suspect Nanny of murder because they kind of banded together after the mother died, after having the fight over the fire. You know what I mean? Um, And the talk of the fire stopped after the mother died. So Nanny again is praised for nursing the old lady in her dying days. And then she heads back to her Jacksonville cottage, seven, several thousand dollars richer. So she's, she's, Racking up quite a bit yeah, of money. Yeah, she is. For back then, especially. She's getting lots of money. So back at her cottage, she is painfully alone. And she dove back into corresponding with men she found in the Lonely Hearts columns. Um, but soon, a letter would come from her family because her sister, Dovey, was sick with cancer. So Nanny rushed back to Blue Mountain to be by her sister's side. And she found Dovey, who was a woman at this time of in her late 30s, wasting away. So Nanny promised Dovey that she would take care of her. She told Dovey she was moving in to take control. And so she came in cleaning the house. She tended to Dovey, taking care of her. But within a week, Dovey was dead. Now, we don't know, and the author wonders, did she really die of natural causes? Because she was sick. Was prunes on the menu? We don't know. But it is possible, maybe... Nanny felt like she was helping her along the way. A mercy killing. A mercy killing. Yeah, okay. Because, you know, she may have died naturally, but it is suspicious that Nanny gets there and a week later she's She's dead, you know? Mm. Uh, And I I did want to point out at this point that Nanny is, she's pretty well off at this point. You know, she's bought and sold property. She's received insurance money. She has sharecroppers on her property giving her, you know, income stream. Um, so she's doing really well well compared to her family in Blue Mountain. Um, you know, the author talks about how she liked her clothes. She liked to dress nice. She kept herself looking nice. Because, plus, she's got to meet all those men. Yeah, know? yeah. So there's a stark difference kind of between her and, and the family that she left behind in Blue Mountain. So she took care of the funeral and the funeral spread. She she covered all that herself. And everybody who attended noted Nanny's grace under pressure, and they were impressed with how she held it together after having just lost a husband and now a sister. Although it's possible she murdered. She's got a lot of practice, though. She's got a lot of practice (laughs) being the grieving person left behind. Now, two people missing from Dovey's funeral were her mother and father. And when Nanny inquired about them, she learned that her father, James, was dead. And the author says this was actually a disappointment for disappointment for nanny because she had always kind of wanted to be the one to get revenge on him for the awful things that he had done you know the Mm. way he treated her i mean i don't know if she actually wanted to kill him but i'm sure she wanted to rub it in her his face that she's i made something yeah look look at you i made myself yeah i'm yeah so not long after dodie dovey's funeral nanny returned to the family farm to see her mother lou and Lou was proud when she saw her daughter. She was impressed um, by what her daughter had become. Because, as I said, she was a wealthy woman at this point with her own home. She dressed nice. 
but Lou was really too old now to attend the farm by herself. And since the farm had never been successful, James Hazel had acquired a lot of death. I mean, James Hazel had acquired a lot of debt. And after her father's death, the bank would be taking possession of the farm within a month. So Lou, Nanny's mother, would just be left homeless in her old age. And none of Lou's other children wanted to take take Lou. They didn't want to take her in. And I wonder if part of this is because, you know, Nanny was always her favorite. She was Lou's favorite. Well, I also wonder if it's financial. And probably financial, Yeah. Um, they all turned to Nanny since she was doing so well so to take her. So Nanny found herself stuck with yet another old woman to care for. <laughs> and her world was kind of spinning out of control because here she is. She's got another old... She just can't get away from having to care for people. So Nanny loved Lou, but she blamed her for protecting her... For not protecting her from James and the family members who molested her. In fact... Nanny kind of resented the fact that now she would have to care for Lou when she didn't feel Lou had taken good care of her as a child, which I could kind of get and that. I'm going to take a wild guess that Lou knew the she had what, to was, what was going on. She had to have known. And, you know, yeah. in that day and age, it's possible Lou went through a lot of that herself. You know, and it just, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. just what happens. You just grow up with it, you know. So Nanny brought Lou home, but in time, Lou became sick. Uh, and soon she seemed to have the same stomach problems that most of Nanny's dead family members had. And Nanny gave Lou some of her stewed prunes to help <laughs> settle her stomach. Um, but it didn't take long before Lou, too, was dead. So I think we're up to 10 now. I, I even put there up to 10. I was trying to count it. But Nanny was the talk of Blue Mountain. Um, everybody thought, you know, she was so generous and taking Lou in in her time of need. How she was kind to nurse both her sister and mother. And how sad it was that she lost them both. Poor Nanny. You know, her life had been filled with such tragedy. And so this is why I put, see, she seemed to be attention and mm. adoration. And I even put, see, this is where I put Munchausen by proxy. I butchered that word, I'm sure. <clears throat> but um, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah, I yeah. wonder if some of it was... You know, like to get attention from the sickness of... Because she was getting a lot of attention from the good deeds she was doing. Right. The, her Florence Nightingale right. impersonation. And, and, oh, how awful it is that you nursed this person for so long and now they're dead. You know? Mm. She does seem... I think sometimes she wants to get rid of people to change her life, but she also seems to want the attention and the praise, you know? And I put, like, the examples, kills her mother so she doesn't have to take care of her, but why kill her sister, you know? Yeah. Um, unless it's just the tension. But I do think killing her mother was probably, you know, to change her life. I don't want to deal with this old woman, you know? So anyway, after her mother's death, she turned her attention once again to finding romance. But now as she was approaching 50, she was looking for something a little more mature. And this time, instead of looking in the Lonely Hearts column, she joined... The Diamond Club. Have you ever heard of that? No. I've never heard of that. It was a national organization um, that for a fee of $15, which was a lot back then, your name would be added to the registry. And this club was for the more discerning. Is I wonder if this is when the whole computerized dating thing came out with the punch cards. They match, they, they, they run your name and so your, your list or whatever your criteria. They run it through a computer and it matches up with somebody else's. And you get two punch cards. Would that they match have up. done that in the fifties? Yeah, you? I mean, I, oh, really? I've, I've seen it in some of the old shows and oh, stuff. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. It, it says in here like what they would do. Um, 
is they would send you a flyer each month with information about the members, and uh-huh. people could write to each other. Okay. But, you know, the $15 fee wasn't really a small thing in 1953. No. But no. I put on there, it probably helped to keep out, like, the riffraff and the people that were just looking to get lucky. $15, she can afford that. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. she can certainly afford that. Uh, she had lots of money at this point. So, Nanny soon received letters from all over the U.S., um, and most of the men who wrote her weren't just looking for a tumble, um, the way that a lot of the Lonely Hearts columns were. These were mostly older men that were really looking for wives. And, of course, Nanny, we've said this before, she really knew how to sell herself. So, she received a letter from Richard Morton, and although he didn't have a way with words or poetry like the other suitors, he seemed genuine in his search for love. So here we go again. Nanny boarded a train bound for Kansas to meet Richard. Richard was a retired salesman in his 60s. And to Nanny's delight, he was tall and dark and handsome. His father had been part Native American. And it showed in Robert's dark hair. Like he didn't have a lot of gray hair, even though he was in his 60s. And so they got along really well. And on their first date, he brought her a necklace and he kissed her. And she returned to her whole hotel room thinking that Like, this could be the one. This could be the one I'm dreaming about. So, Richard, too, was smitten. And even though Nanny was in her 40s now, she still had that girlish, you know, charms and her giggly nature and friendly nature. So, more gifts came. And in a matter of weeks, Nanny was calling Alabama and asking for her things to be shipped to Kansas. And they would marry within a month of meeting each other. A month. Uh. That gets shorter too every time. Yeah, it does seem like it, and the 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 marriages get shorter because we went from eight years on the first one, sixteen years on the second one, five years on the third one, and, yeah. and this one's even shorter. <clears throat> so Richard even wrote the Diamond Club and asked them to remove his and Nanny's names from the roster, and he even thanked them for introducing him to the most wonderful woman he had ever met. So she was able to really charm men. You know what I mean? And when you look at the picture in her old age, I mean, you know, when she finally gets caught, she she just looks like a little granny, you know? But somehow she was still able to charm. But the, the pictures I saw of her, and this was at the time of her arrest, she had no gray hair. She must have had it down and it was really curled. Yeah, she had a curl. She was very, she was, she was dressed nicely. Yeah, she dressed She nice. looked good. She was a little heavy. Yeah. But she, she, And for the period. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of these men in the Diamond Club, um, they were looking for sort of respectable wives, you know, which she would have been, she would have been that. So Nanny settled down in Richard's little home in the prairie, little, little house on the prairie. Um, Nanny found Kansas to be idyllic, even if her home was kind of isolated. She had a garden, and she had no children to tend to, and Richard was a treat. Like, Richard was hardly away from home, so she didn't have to worry about his whereabouts. Um, but when he did go out, he would, to pick up something from town, he would always bring her presents, like flowers or jewelry and chocolates. So she'd never really been treated so well. So it all seemed really perfect at first. But then Nanny began to sort of miss her time alone, you know? <laughs> like with her other husbands, she spent a lot of time doing things as she pleased. And so now with Richard always underfoot, you know, she didn't mind his company, but it did start to feel a little suffocating. And even the gifts at one point, she starts to feel like maybe they're not so thoughtful. And it's more that he just doesn't know any other way to express his affection other than giving gifts. Like they seemed like a bombardment, I guess, is what he said, the author said. 
So the honeymoon was over, and soon Richard started spending more and more time in town. And when Nanny would ask where he'd been, he'd say, I dawdled. That was his, I dawdled. Um, And since her house was so isolated on the prairie, she really didn't have any neighbors or friends, so it was hard to discover Richard's activities, because usually when she had a reason to go to town, Richard was at her side. It was only when she went to the hair salon that she learned some of the local gossip about her husband. Ooh. Ooh, the local guy. And what she learned was that before she came into Richard's life, there was a long string of younger women who Richard, um, who were with Richard for the gifts that he would lavish on them. And it turns out that some of these young women were still receiving gifts from Richard. And one who was even young enough to be his granddaughter was visited by him on his many trips to town when he dawdled. (laughs) Dawdled. Yeah, that's a euphemism, I guess, for (laughs) I dawdled. Um, So the women in the salon kind of gave Nanny their sympathy. But, you know, if they had been suspecting her to break down in tears, they were disappointed because that's not who she was, you know. So when Richard came to collect her from the salon, she gave him the same smile that she gave him when he left, but she was probably already plotting her revenge at that point. And the author points out here, he says that if Richard had just been faithful to Nanny, he probably would have had a good life in his retirement with her, um, that she would have been a good wife to him, but marrying her with no intention of being faithful sealed his fate but she was complaining about him being underfoot so yeah. why isn't she happy with his dawdling I is it because she's too far out on the prairie not that she can't dawdle i think maybe it is i think she's she's stuck way out on the prairie and i think at first she really liked the prairie life but then it's like you said there's there's nothing else there there's nothing to do there's nobody to see yeah and richard's the only one here and then soon he his trips to town got longer and longer. And she don't have any place yeah. to... And she didn't have anybody to dawdle no. with. She ain't got nobody to dawdle with. So, yeah. So, anyway, after learning about the truth of her, of her new husband, Nanny began writing to a new crop of male correspondents. She always keeps up with her pen pals. But she was telling them that she would be widowed in Kansas. She, oh, wait. Sorry. She was telling them she had just been widowed in Kansas and was planning to travel. So this was before Richard was dead. She was telling people, I'm a widow. So uh-huh. So she took out several life insurance policies on Richard. And this is the first one that she purposefully took out life insurance policies. Um, but, I put buck, but she dug around in his financial documents and she discovered that he was deeply in debt. Um, the house was remortgaged. And every day that he bought extravagant, extravagant gifts for his ladies, he was putting Nanny more and more in the hole. And her life insurance policies would just cover his debt. So she really couldn't risk him spending any more money. So she had to act fast. You know, he's spending the money up. They don't have a lot. I think she thought he was much wealthier than he was. Yeah. So three months, this is three months, three months after they were married, Richard passed away. This time, she put rat poison in stewed prunes again, but she baked them into an apple pie, and she claimed it was her mother's recipe. <laughs> stewed prunes again. That's kind of cruel. I don't know if I can ever eat prunes. I don't know if I, if anybody served me prunes after reading the story. I don't think I could eat them. But Richard went to sleep, and he simply didn't wake up again. And as he was an older man, when the doctor showed up, he didn't see anything suspicious. And the author put, well, maybe the hair salon suspected Nanny, but they didn't say anything. Mm. 
So she didn't stay in long in Kansas after the funeral. It was just long enough for the bank to foreclose on the house and for the insurance policies to pay out. So she was up over $2,000 from this marriage. And in 1953, that would have been the equivalent of about 20000 which, you know, not bad, I guess, for three months. Right. No. I'm sure she would have liked more, but not bad. Um, but we are going to take a small break right here for our final word from one of our sponsors. Again, this is a totally real sponsor. This is not fake at all. I'm, we assure you. Folks, it has happened. Ghost and Cornbread will have the honor of living on the air in Cincinnati, courtesy of six-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner Les Nesman. Mr. Nesman has become a fan of the podcast and has offered 30 minutes following his agribusiness report on the first and second Monday of every month. We will also have Mr. Nesman with us to offer his insight into local ghost and unsolved murder mysteries in the greater Cincinnati area. It's such an honor to have this opportunity, and we look forward to living on the air in Cincinnati. (laughs) Yay! All right, so thank you, WKRP. I love that show. Mm-hmm. I like the turkeys. <laughs> the turkey scene. Yeah, that was a classic. Anyway, when we left, <laughs> Richard was dead, and she only gained uh, $2,000. So after all of her disastrous marriages, her hopes for a great romance had begun to dwindle. She realized that if a man wrote her poetry and made her heart flutter, he was probably doing that with other women. So her priorities changed, and now she was looking for a good man that she could live out the rest of her days with. He didn't have to be handsome or romantic, just a decent man. So her thinking was surely, you know, she'd be able to find at least one. So she made her way to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which she found to be quite dull at first. I've never been to Oklahoma. Have you ever? Mm -hmm. Okay. To meet a man named Samuel Doss, one of her many pen pals. Now, Samuel Doss was a sturdy, God-fearing man. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't chase women, he didn't gamble, and he never uttered a crossword. Um, his, appearance was co- his appearance was conservative with that high and tight haircut, and he was fu- frugal with money. Sam was a, no-no- a no-nonsense man, and in other words, kind of boring. He kind of, like the description of him, kind of reminds me of my grandfather. <laughs> He was like like that, and no nonsense, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't, you know, that high, he always had that high and tight haircut, you know. Anyway, Sam was 59 years old, but he looked considerably younger due to his clean living. Um, he was a state highway inspector, which took him, a, took him on the road throughout the week, but on Sundays, he was a lay preacher at a local church. Now, I don't know what denomination it was. I couldn't find that or what kind of church, but in Oklahoma, I would think... Oh, I don't know why. I don't know. It seemed like something kind of strict, more like Baptist or Church of Christ or something. Anyway, he didn't know much about Nanny, except that she was a widow and a good cook and a good homemaker. And that was enough for him. You know, these people, they're just, they just wanted to be married, I guess. Um, He was just looking for a good woman to live out his days with. So he proposed in a month. This was a month after Richard had been laid to rest. (laughs) Nanny and Sam married in Tulsa, Oklahoma in June of 1953. So they they had to have only known each other a couple weeks at this point. Exactly. Yeah. 
Now, Sam wasn't a bully like her other husbands. Um, in fact, he would help her in the kitchen or, or around the house. But he did have, like, really high standards for the type of home that he expected her to keep. Maybe it was a little too high because he didn't threaten her with violence if she didn't meet his standards. But he did show that he was disappointed if she didn't keep it, the house up. And his penny-pinching penny became problematic from her, for her. His penny-pinching... I think I've been talking for too long. You know what it sounds like? What? Scroll down for a minute. Mm-hmm. No, I mean scroll up. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, oh, right there. Mm-hmm. All her other, other husbands was more of a physical. Yes. This, this seems mental abuse. Right. Guilt. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. Um, Like, as I was saying, his pity pinching uh, became problematic for her. He didn't let her use the fan. Unless the temperature was unbearably high. When she left a room, the light has to be turned off and the door closed. If she wanted to read, only a reading lamp next to her chair could be turned on. No other lights. Um, She wasn't allowed treats or luxury. And Nanny had to justify to him everything that she bought. You know? Yeah. And if Sam deemed something too frivolous, he would make her go back to the store and return it. Oh, I bet she didn't like that. Oh, she did not. This meant Nanny couldn't spend money on nice clothes or good cuts of meat. And I didn't even—I didn't write this in here, but I did wonder. She had a lot of money. She had her own money. I wonder if she didn't tell him how much money she had. I wonder because she's always been able to provide these nice things for herself. Right. But I wonder if she didn't want him to know that. I don't know. So I don't a know why secretive she... secretive prenup without it being a prenup? Yeah. Or maybe she thought if she bought her own clothes, he would freak out i don't know i don't know why she didn't just use her own money but anyway every aspect of their lives was regimented from when they got up when they went to bed when dinner was served and even sex was planned and marked on the calendar that's how <laughs> regimented so spontaneous so, so spontaneous. that had to be so enjoyful so joyful but anyway there was no joy in her life with sam sam's focus was to live a devoted holy life and he expected that of nanny as well and then this is actually out of the book this line nanny couldn't abide it <laughs> i like that sentence do you remember, did you ever watch the big lebowski yeah i did but I, i'm not a huge fan like other people the dude abides but nanny couldn't abide and so anyway three months after their marriage she just took off she returned to her cottage in jacksonville of Alabama and the author it's kind of like what you said earlier the author drew comparisons between Sam and her father even though Sam wasn't abusive like her father he was controlling and he treated her like almost like a harlot if she wanted something he deemed frivolous or wore something that he thought was flashy so there were kind of parallels like you said she he wasn't physically abusive, but it was more mental. It's and like she financial. went from one extreme to the mm-hmm. other. She just couldn't get to know these people ahead of time. You know, when you marry somebody after two weeks, you don't know. No. So anyway, when she took the train back to Alabama, her intention was to shake off this mistake and plan her next move. But when she reached her cottage, there was already a letter for, from Sam waiting. Um, it wasn't an apology. It was an explanation of why Nanny shouldn't leave him. So he admitted that he was set in his ways, but he told her that if that she would soon fall into line and if she came back and he he said she would fall into line if she came back um, and he blamed some of their problems on her flighty temperament. I'm sure she didn't like that. 
No. But he followed up with this offer that if she came back to him and got in line, basically he would put his money in a shared account so that she wouldn't have to go begging to him every time she needed something. So in other words, like, if you behave the way I say, then I'll give you access to the money. So once again, she's being controlled by a man like her father. And she still can't buy what she wants to buy, I'm sure. Yeah, and like I said here, why is she relying on him? That's, you know, she had so mm. much money. I don't know why she did that. So even this le- even though this letter didn't offer an apology um, or a desire for change, Nanny did see an opportunity in this letter. And the author points out here that Nanny was never able to get revenge on her father um, because of his death, but planning Sam's death might have kind of felt like closure to her, you know what I mean? Plus, she would have access to the money, so it it kind of seemed like too good of a deal to pass up. And again, this, this would be the mistake that she would get caught with. So she gathered her things and wrote to some of her suitors that she would be back in Alabama in three months. So poor Sam had no idea. He had so little time left. (laughs) And this does seem to be the first one that she almost ahead of time really planned. I mean, I think some of the other ones she knew she was going to do it when something happened right then. Right. This one seems more preconceived. Premeditated ahead of time. It wasn't just like, oh, hey, here's his whiskey bottle. I mean, here's his moonshine bottle. I'll put rat poison in it. This seems like I'm going back with the intention to kill him, you know. So back in Oklahoma, Sam was glad to see Nanny back. And he took her he took her to the bank to put her on all the accounts and hold up his end of the bargain. Sam also changed the beneficiary of his life insurance policy to Nanny. And I'm sure that was the nail in the coffin. Because mm. now she's on the... Um, and I put some... This is the first time that she would actually murder someone solely for the money. In the past, the money was kind of secondary to other reasons. You know, like she wanted a better life or she was being abused. And sometimes we just don't know why she yeah, did it. Yeah, or it was a cheater. But this one seemed to be so... Like, I still don't know about the baby. I don't get that one. Yeah. But this one seems to be solely for the money. <clears throat> now, one of the things she brought back from Alabama was her library of romance novels and magazines. And so when Sam saw the books, he refused to have them in the house. He said no woman of good character would read such trash. And he considered it a sin. And if she expected to live in his house, the books and the magazines would have to go. She's had these her whole whole life. life. And they're beloved. I've even put, he threw out her beloved novels and stories. And that was the final straw. It was the one thing she could count on. Uh The one place she could go. It was her escape. Yeah. So Nanny immediately started planning his death. Now, there was a problem with Sam, unlike the other ones. So this was the problem with his murder. First of all, Sam didn't eat sweets. So it's not like she could hide it easily in cakes Mm -hmm. and pies. Um, You know, so she couldn't cover up the taste of rat poison with sugar. And another problem was Sam was often in the kitchen with her when she was cooking. So she couldn't put a bunch into a meal without being noticed. So she resorted, she resorted to just adding a couple of teaspoons to his coffee each morning. So it wasn't enough to kill him all at once like the others. Instead, he just got sick. He got sicker. And I kind of feel like if she could have killed him all at once, maybe she would have been okay. But this was the problem. He just got sicker and sicker. And by September, the gradual buildup of poison had taken its toll. Sam was weak. He had lost 15 pounds. Um, He was wrecked with stomach cramps. And his gastroenterologist, and I'm not sure how you say this, Dr. Schwelbin? 
It looks good to me. Schwelbin um, was stumped. So Sam was hospitalized. And the doctor, Dr. Schwelbin, diagnosed him with an infection of the intestinal tract. So he started him on penicillin, and Sam was in the hospital for 23 days. And the doctor was kind of confused by why it took so long for the antibiotics to clear the infection. You but it I mean? wasn't the antibodies clearing the infection. It was, the, did, or it was the... I think it was the, the days being in the hospital without, without being poisoned. The, yeah. yeah. And, um, and this is where her mistake was, because, you know, it was so gradual that it gave time for other people, for the doctor to see him. Whereas if he had just died at once... They would have just thought, ah, heart failure or something. Anyway, Nanny was by his side the whole time playing the dutiful wife, you know, for the hospital and staff to see. And when Sam finally came home from the hospital, she made him a roast pork dinner with all the trimmings. And she promised him this was just a one-time extravagance because, you know, he didn't like extravagant things to celebrate his homecoming. And for once, Sam didn't mind. After being in the hospital for so long, he was ravenous. So he scarfed down a ton of the roast and drank many cups of coffee. Now, after he ate, his stomach pains returned. And thinking that they were from overindulging, Sam went to bed while Nanny cleaned out the coffee pot. (laughs) The next morning, she called the ambulance, even though she knew that Sam was dead. And he was taken to the morgue. And again, no one was suspicious because Sam had suffered so much you yeah, know, in the last few months. The hospital. So her neighbors and the church congregation, they all felt bad for her, you know, because she presented herself as this dutiful, doting wife. And she thought she had gotten away with it because, you know, he'd been sick for so long. They all bought it. Everyone bought it, except for Dr. Schwelbin, the gastroenterologist who treated Sam. He couldn't understand why was he dead all of a sudden. You know, he'd just been healed. Yeah. So this is the thing. Dr. Schwalben was an expert in the field, and none of this made sense to him. The doctor didn't understand why it took so long for Sam's infection to respond to antibiotics in the hospital, and he couldn't understand how Sam could be dead just one day of being released. So he ordered an autopsy. And what he found in Sam's stomach was a practically whole, whole <laughs> roast a whole roast he'd eaten so much a belly full of coffee and enough arsenic to kill a horse oh my goodness so this was it so nanny was arrested hours after the autopsy was complete um she denied everything she was even giggling when the cops asked her about killing her husband this is where the idea of the giggling granny came She carried one of her romance magazines with her to the police station, and she flipped through her magazine and smiled and giggled as they asked her questions. She was completely sort of devoid of any guilt or... So the cops didn't know how to deal with her because she looked like this sweet old granny, but they had learned that she had had four husbands who died under similar circumstances. So finally, Special Agent Ray Page sat down next to her, and he told her... Okay, Abigail. That's enough, Abby. Okay, we're almost done here. Um, So finally, Special Agent Ray Page sat down next to her, and she told him, Oh, you're a handsome young man. You're a handsome young man, but if you think I hurt somebody, you're as good-looking as you are foolish. But he took her mango... He took her magazine away, and he said, Do you believe in ghosts? Abigail, I know you're getting tired. Usually when I'm home, I'll feed them at three, even though they don't normally eat until about six when I come home from work when I'm working. 
But they try to push it up every when I'm home. Well, of course. You know, they try to push it back. <laughs> anyway, okay, I'll, let me start with. He took her magazine away, and he asked her, do you believe in ghosts? So that kind of took her back. And he explained that he's dealt with a lot of people that have murdered someone, and that they're always haunted by the ghosts of their victims, which I don't know that that's really true. But he told her that. A trick, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But he told her that he saw the same look in her eyes, and then asked her if the ghosts of her husbands were in the room. And that seemed to have caught her off guard. So he told her, look, we can either do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. And I can go around the country and exhume all the bodies of your husband, husbands and test them from, for arsenic. But if you confess now, we can spare you the death penalty. So that seemed to do it because she said, okay, I put rat poison in his coffee. She finally admitted it. And the whole room went silent. Silent. And she went on to say, he was a miserly old man who wouldn't let me watch my stories, and he wouldn't let me use the fan, and, and went on about all the things he wouldn't let her do. <laughs> so Agent Page told her, he sounds very cruel. And she said, yes, now can I have my magazine back? <laughs> she wanted her back. So he told her he'd give it back if she would tell him about her other husbands. So she walked him through one by one how he ki- she killed all the others. But never the she would, sister, mm-hmm. mother, She denied ever killing anyone else. But eventually, most of all the bodies would be exhumed, except for the children. They didn't exhume any of the children, but they exhumed everybody else. And everybody else had significant quantities of arsenic in their system. There were a few of them, and it didn't mention, but there were a couple, not the husbands, but a couple of the others that didn't have lethal lethal amounts of arsenic, but there were signs of asphyxiation. Okay. And it made me wonder if it could have been, like, maybe one of the older ladies, like her mother or her her mother-in-law. Maybe they were too old to eat a lot. You know how, like, older people don't eat a lot? Yeah. So maybe they, she just made them sick, and in the end, she just smothered them. I don't know. It's horrible to think of her smothering them. Anyway, Charlie Braggs, her first husband, asked the state to exhume his daughters. You remember the two daughters at the very beginning? Um, but they felt like that they had enough on, on Nanny at this point, so they never did exhume mm. them. I think they should have, though, just to give him... I don't know. I guess Give him closure. I guess it wouldn't have changed anything. But anyway, there is a picture of her smiling and giggling after being arrested. Um, she giggled for the cam- cameras. And when reporters asked her what she thought her punishment should be for killing her husband, she giggled and said, whatever they think is fair. Whatever. whatever. I don't know. Maybe she really did have a I know she injury from that the train. She seemed to... She just basked in the attention. And in the end, she was only charged for Sam Doss's murder in Oklahoma. And not wanting to go through a trial, she actually pled guilty. So she was sentenced to life in prison. However, she died 10 years later from leukemia. So she was sentenced in 1955 Mm. and died in 65. But in an interview, um, you know, after she got arrested, um, she claimed that she thought it, it was the concussion as a child like you said, on the train that had caused her to commit these crimes, that that had, ch- had changed her in some way. I don't know. I don't know. And I think I said this uh, earlier, you know, when reading some of the articles, like our Wikipedia, when they would ask, it would say motive for killing was insurance money. But 
That's not true. I feel like to just say she killed for insurance money. She was upset in these relationships. She had been done wrong. Yeah. She went into these relationships with high expectations. She did. And when she got betrayed, she was angry. Yeah. I think the money was kind of a secondary thing. But like you said, even when she had her own money, it still... Yeah. Continued. Yeah. She's still, you know, the Lonely Hearts Club. and Yeah. Where she, if she had just stopped at one point and lived in her cottage, she would have, she could have lived out her or days. Or you know what? That, that last husband, maybe if he hadn't have been so controlling. Yeah. Or when she left him, she could have just stayed home and, like, not gone back. But he offered her all that incentive to kill him. You know, but she had so <laughs> I know, but she had her own money at that time. She had her own house. She didn't really need it. I don't know. Why she wanted? Maybe she. Maybe just that thought, bump on the head didn't corrupt the greed. <laughs> yeah, she just got greedy. Yeah, I don't know. Poor thing, giggling, giggling granny. Yeah, uh, but the only one I'm not really sure about, you know, is Robert. We talked about that. Her grandson. Like, why did she have an insurance policy on him? I don't know. But I do think a lot of a lot of because a lot of the murders had nothing to do with insurance money. Yeah. So I think a lot of that was either to change her life or to get sympathy and get adoration for from the community, you know? You know, when somebody dies and you go through a funeral, and a, you get a lot of attention during that time, you know? But, you know, the, the, the two grandchildren that she may or may have not killed uh-huh. were the children of her favorite child. I wonder if there's some sort of jealousy yeah. between, you know... The daughter's love with her children and the, the love that she lost from the daughter. Yeah, and I think I said that in there that she might have thought that her having another child, it was just another thing to pull Mulvina away from yeah. her. You know what I yes, mean? Yes. Like, it was something else to come in between her and Mulvina, you know? I don't know, and I did put in here that you might could understand at least some of the murders of the husband, not condone them, but understand someone who had this horrific childhood. I can understand her motive. Yeah, you can understand. Not agree with it. Right. But understand but it's why. The, it's the killing of the children that I can't... The hat pin. I don't get... That's horrible. If anything, I, I, I thought it was going to be a suffocation. Yeah. That's what I was... Ooh, it's just pin. horrific. For her to be able to do that, she had to have been cold-blooded. She had, you know... Part of it, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, you know, like her husband Charlie said something about her being cold. And, you know, even though she presents this image of friendly and... But inside the house when the doors yeah. are closed. Yeah. I don't know. And I, I don't know. And I did put in here, kids often died in the 20s. Maybe she thought, and eh, nobody will... It's normal back then for kids to die. So I'll just take them out. I don't know. You know? My grandmother, and I put a story in here. My grandmother was kind of morbid like that. Like, she would talk about things like... I don't know what was, it was, she was odd. She was, she was very morbid. Like if, like one time we were waiting for family members to come back before we all left to go somewhere. And she said, um, well, y'all might as well go on. They're probably dead. You know, that was just the way she would talk. And when I was a kid, I was only like about 12. We were going, I think we were going to get a Christmas tree. And she was in the car in the back seat with me. And we went over a bridge. I may have told you this story before. And she looked out over at the bridge and she goes, I bet a lot of babies been thrown off that bridge. And I thought, what? I didn't know what to say at 12. What do you say You're to 12 and it's going to get a Christmas tree. <laughs> and she's like, I bet a lot of babies been thrown off that bridge. But, you know, she was born in like 1916. <laughs> Maybe people did that back then. Maybe they just threw babies over the bridge. I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. I wonder if she knew Billy Joe. 
Maybe so. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's the story of the giggling granny. I enjoyed that one. It's a Very crazy tale. So. I'm just surprised that she's not bigger in our culture that we don't talk about her the same way we talk about like Ted Bundy and yeah, you know, all the others. But anyway, well, I think there's a lot of murders that happened back in the oh, 40s yeah. and 30s that are just well even before that think of we talked about this before about like think about like in the 1800s which you could have gotten away with oh yeah yeah oh well anyway rangers getting fidgety so thank you for listening and we're gonna be watching for tornadoes later today oh maybe. yeah we're we're under tornado watch here in alabama so dixie alley if you're in alabama be safe although you i won't post this until several days later but okay <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Ranger says bye.